Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by the novelist and campaigner and teacher and public speaker Elif Shafak, whose latest book, long-listed for this year's Man Booker Prize, is 10 minutes and 38 seconds in this strange world. Elif, welcome. Thank you. Tell us a bit about this book. It's got a very unusual premise. Its heroine is dead at the beginning. Right, at the very beginning. Actually, the the first two words in this novel are the end. That's how it begins. So right away we know that the main character is dead. She's a sex worker. Her name is Leila in Istanbul. She has been brutally killed and her body has been dumped in a garbage bin. But the thing is, I became very interested in these studies, scientific and medical studies, that show after the moment of death, after the heart has stopped beating, the brain can remain active for another few minutes. So that, to me, was an amazing puzzle. Particularly in Canada, doctors have found out and researchers have observed persistent brain activity for about 10 minutes in dead patients So when I started writing this story, I remembered that, I researched that. And therefore, we do know right away that Leila is dead, but her brain is still working. And as she remembers her past, minute by minute by minute, we travel into her story, but also the story of Turkey, the story of the Middle East, a little bit, always told through the eyes of outcasts, people who have been pushed to the periphery. I was going to say also... 10 minutes. You added 38 seconds yourself. Why did you choose 38 yes. seconds? <laughs> yeah, I, I wanted to add another 38 seconds. It was, it was so challenging, but at the same time, inspiring for a novelist to take the idea, which gave me the structure of the book, because every chapter, you know, you have one minute to tell something crucial about this person's entire life. And then the question is, And if it is true that the part of our brain that is in charge of long-term memory is the last bit to shut down, then the question is, what do we remember? You know, the good things or the bad things of a whole life, what remains with us in those limited, you know, minutes ticking by? So that was very challenging for, for a writer. But it also made me very conscious of the importance of each and every chapter And every minute in this book starts with small things like senses, smells, tastes. This is how she remembers every crucial moment in her life, always through those small senses that, in a way, are the gate to those more momentous events. And, I mean, did you sort of know which points in her life you were going to choose? Or was it something that developed organically? Did you say, you know, I've got, you know, ten or so little scenes that are going to add together to to tell her story quite holistically? I, I genuinely think there are two different ways of writing a novel. The first one is a bit like engineering, you know, in which the novelist wants to be a little bit more in control, in charge of things, and wants to know what each and every character is going to do, you know, five chapters later on, and how the story is going to end. There's a lot of cerebral work that goes into that kind of writing. Uh, And I have a lot of respect for that kind of writing, but that's not my path. When I write, I write usually with intuition. I love to follow the flow of language. 
And also I love it when the characters lead the way. I think that the novel is a very democratic space and writers do not own that space. So sometimes you want to keep a character on the sidelines, but she or he becomes much more important than you initially assumed. I like that kind of flow. Of course, I always do a lot of research. I take the research part very, very seriously. Also, I stayed in academia for long years, and maybe that gave me a sense of discipline, which I normally lack in my life. But that said, after a while, you know, as you're writing, it, it grows organically and the story leads the way. Did you know that, that it was going to have a second half? Because it is a book of, you know, one could very easily see you doing this and almost an obvious way of doing it would be to say, right, I've got this 10 minutes and 38 seconds. I've got Layla's story and that's that's going to be the shape of it. Right. But you have, I think you call them the five Yes. Layla's friends. And the second half of the book, you know, Layla dies again, if you like, or you know, stops thinking halfway through the book. Mm-hmm. I hope it's not a spoiler to say this. Mm-hmm. And then some more stuff happens right. with her five friends. Was that always part of the design or is that your characters starting to go, hey? Yes. You know, well, the book we is divided into three main sections. So there's the body, first the body dies, then the mind dies. And then if it's, a, if it's the soul or whatever you call it, that third element, there's the last bit at the end, right? And I think one thing that was very crucial for me and motivated me as I was writing this novel is an actual place in Istanbul that not many people know much about. People don't visit this place. People do not read about this place, but it exists. And at the end of the book, there's a picture of this place. It is a graveyard. It's a cemetery. But unlike any other graveyard in Istanbul, this one has no names, no surnames, no tombstones, only numbers. So just wooden placards with numbers scribbled on it. It is an actual place where real people are turned into numbers. I've been to this place in the past. I was very drawn to it. I was curious about it. And and when you study... Yeah. Wonderfully resident name is the Cemetery of the Companionless. Yes, it is called, yeah. the literal translation will be, yeah, the Cemetery of the Companionless. That's how we call it in Turkish. So when you look into the people who are buried there, so many of them are outcasts. These are people who have been shunned by their families. They have not been given a proper funeral or a burial. They have, in a way, just been dumped there. Many of them are LGBTQ members. There are lots of sex workers who have been buried there. Because their families won't claim them. Because their families wouldn't claim them. Also, lots of people who have died of AIDS, particularly throughout 1980s and 90s. Because of the stigma of AIDS, they have been buried there. Lots of abundant babies are there. Suicides are there. But also a growing number of refugees. We always read in the newspapers about refugees who have drowned as they were trying to cross into Europe. But where are all these bodies taken? Hundreds of them, they're taken to the cemetery of the Companionless. So it's a very strange place where an Afghan refugee or a Syrian refugee might be buried next to a Turkish sex worker next to an abundant baby. And I think as an author, I wanted to take at least one of those numbers and give it a name, give it a surname, a story, an individuality, and reverse that process. The character in my book, Leila, is buried there, but her friends cannot accept this because she was not companionless. Yes, maybe she was rejected by her family and by the society, but that doesn't mean she had no friends. Yeah, and those friends themselves, you... I mean, they're, they're a kind of 
unusual mix. They're all, in a sense, outsiders themselves as well, aren't they? Yes. Uh, to me, this is important, and maybe this is something I've experienced myself too. I think in life we have two types of families. One of them I call blood family. The other is the water family. If our blood families are loving and kind and more stable, tender, we should count our blessings. That is wonderful. But also bear in mind that not everyone is as lucky. And particularly to those people, the book says, do not forget, as you keep living, you're going to have another family. And that's going to be your water family. And our water families cannot be composed of dozens and dozens of people. Very limited, smaller, you know. But those, the number of those friends that compose the water family can be five maximum or six maximum. But these are the people who know us, who are the witnesses to our journeys. And when we fall down badly, they are the ones who pick us up. What I've seen in countries like Turkey, where democracy is lost, where the, there's a lot of intolerance in the public space. And if you are different for whatever reason, then you feel otherized immediately, especially in such countries. I think water families become even more important. In other words, the solidarity or the sisterhood between outcasts becomes incredibly vital to survive. Yeah. And in that sense, do you consider it, to an extent, you know, a political novel? It's certainly tracked by historical events, you know, protests being put down, the, mm -hmm. you know, rise of the Islamist mm -hmm. movement. It's mm -hmm. got, yeah, there's a lot of 20th century history that kind of muscles into this book. And mm -hmm. you have a line in your epilogue, you say, many things in this book are true and everything is fiction. I mean, how do you see the book as fitting in? Is it a, is it a political book? I've always believed if you happen to be a storyteller from a wounded democracy, such as Turkey or Pakistan or Egypt, Venezuela, Brazil, Nigeria, Philippines. I mean, imagine the list is so long and it's getting longer and longer. I think if you happen to be an author from such countries, you do not have the luxury of being non-political. You just can't say, you know what, I'm just going to close the curtains. I don't want to think about what's happening outside the window. I'm only going to sit at my desk and write my story. You can't say that when so much is happening outside the window. Also, I am a feminist. One of the many wonderful things I've learned from women's movements of past generations is precisely about this, that politics is not only about political parties or parliament or presidents. It is also it's about power. And wherever there's power, there's politics. So in that regard, the personal is also political. In other words, if you're writing about sexuality, gender-based violence, issues like that, again, you're doing political work. So when you describe politics in such a broad way, a nuanced way, I think you cannot be non-political as an author. And it's interesting to me to see more and more Western authors, particularly after 2016, with the changes in the world, also responding to political events with the same kind of urgency. Now, that said, there is a nuance there. I think a writer's job is to ask questions, difficult questions about difficult issues, and some of these issues will be very political. But it's not our job to try to dictate the answers or preach the answers or to try to teach anything. I find that very off-putting, to be honest. So that is the distinction that I make. You know, I always want to be able to ask questions about silences, about taboos, the things that we cannot talk about easily, create an open space 
where a diversity of opinions can be heard, but always leave the answer to the reader, because every reader's reading is going to be unique and personal, and I always respect that. And do you feel that the, I mean, I'm interested in where you see your fiction as fitting in with your wider work, because you are an advocate for a number of causes, you you know, you you do campaigning work, you teach, you know, it, is fiction a sort of a way of approaching certain things that, you know, you, it's a set of tools for doing one thing and, you know, your, your direct political advocacy or non-fiction are, on, are somewhere else or are they kind of linked? You know, in my mind, they're so connected. Everything is connected. And I do not believe in these artificial categories that we impose on ourselves in academia, particularly these walls between disciplines. There is a question that I ask myself, how is it possible that so many experts got so many things wrong over the years? Whether we're talking about the financial crisis, euro crisis, whether it's Brexit happened, Trump happened, you know, the Arab Spring, remember how we how they predicted at the beginning. How is it possible that so many intelligent, very well-educated, very well-read people kept getting things wrong? And I think one of the reasons is because we are so atomized. Everyone knows their own fields very well, in depth, but we don't necessarily connect the dots. And that is a huge problem. We don't have enough conversations between disciplines, between cultures, transcending those mental boundaries. So, of course, as a fiction writer, I primarily read fiction, and that is where my love is. But to me, it's much more interesting and intellectually stimulating when a fiction writer reads neuroscience. I don't know anything about neuroscience. Let's see how I'm going to respond to that kind of information, right? Knowledge. So when a novelist reads neuroscience or when a neuroscientist loves poetry or when a poet becomes interested in political philosophy or when a political philosopher becomes interested in film theory, Those are the conversations that are going to stimulate us. So when people say to me, you know, I don't have time to read fiction, I read important stuff, I feel sad because those are very artificial boundaries. We should read both fiction and non-fiction. And in my opinion, our reading lists should be quite diverse and eclectic, both from East and West. Well, speaking of eclecticism in East and West, you're a Turkish writer who writes in English and in Turkish. Is that, I mean, I'm interested in what the different experience, I was talking to Jumpa Lahiri about writing Italian, you know, do you sort of think this, this book needs to be in English or this book needs to be in Turkish or do you, I mean, have you sort of, now you're living essentially in exile, do you, you know, is English the language that it feels natural to write in? I mean, what's, what's the different feel for you as, a, as an artist working in a different language? I think for me the primary thing is I love languages, you know, plural. I love words. To me that is very crucial. So even when I was writing in Turkish primarily, I was always trying to expand the limits of daily life Turkish. That is an important question in Turkey and a political one too because you might know this, we have Turkified our language. As you know, the Ottoman Empire was a multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-religious empire. As a result, the language, the syntax was Turkish, but when you look at the vocabulary, the vocabulary was a mixture of Turkish, Arabic, Persian, and also Kurdish, Armenian, Ladino, Greek words. So when all when when the language was Turkified in a way, 
hundreds and hundreds of words were taken out, mostly coming from Persian and Arabic origin. So as a writer, I can say red in Turkish, I can say yellow in Turkish, but the shades in between, I have no names for them because they used to come from Persian and they've been, in a way, purged. And I've always been very critical of that. Which Is there a Turkish academy that... that Prescribe, like the Académie Française it, that prescribes this? Actually, the, the French, huh. I'm glad you mentioned France because um, it was very similar to what happened in France in a way, you know, centralised, top-down, determining how language should be spoken. That process did happen in Turkey as well. The problem is, if you happen to be a liberal, progressive-minded person, people do not expect you to care about old words only very conservative people above a certain age are expected to have some concern and knowledge of those words. So when I started using both old words and new words, that was very confusing for many people in Turkey. Now, fast forward, my relationship with English language is more cerebral. My relationship with the Turkish language is very emotional. And there are studies that show we always think more rationally when we speak in another language. University of Chicago made these very interesting studies. Sometimes I need the zone, the freedom that writing in English gives me. I like that. I cherish that. However, do you feel like a different writer when you're writing in English? I mean, is there a... Yeah, I think... Know, do you think differently? Do you see the world differently? We Are do, absolutely. That? And that's because languages shape us. You know, they have an impact on us. They have their own melodies. They have their own labyrinths. And I like that. I like the commute, actually, back and forth. And that's what nationalists do not get. I've been criticized a lot in Turkey for abandoning my mother tongue when I started writing in English about like 15 years ago. But what these people do not understand is you're not abandoning anything. It's not an either-or framework. You can be, you can dream in more than one language, you know? And the mind already does that, doesn't recognize those boundaries that we set for ourselves because of these nationalistic imaginations. Just parenthetically, sorry, I, I'm just yeah. sort of fascinated by that. How was the Turkification, as it were, enforced? I'm sure that, you know, government documents and so forth mm-hmm. could be like, but, you know, if you go into a cafe and use the word for a shade between red, you know, for some shade of orange mm-hmm. that's a Persian word. People wouldn't recognise it. People wouldn't know the word. But how, how can a word that's in use mm-hmm. be purged from conversational language? Well, imagine if you... I mean, you couldn't presumably be arrested for using an old-fashioned word. No, not like that, not like that. It's more subtle, in fact. And I think if you look at an Ottoman dictionary, it's quite thick. Well, if you look at a modern Turkish dictionary, it's almost half the size. So around 45% of the vocabulary is gone. Now, when I hear people speak English, and when you say words like chutzpah or kismet... And nobody warns you, nobody says, wait a minute, the first is a Jewish word, the second is an Arabic word, they have no room in the English language, they have no place there, let's take them out. Nobody says that. They're all part of the English language organically. There's a part of me that appreciates that, that likes that kind of, you know, flow and continuity. But I think over the years what I've realized is if my writing has melancholy and sadness and longing in it, I think I find those things much easier to express in Turkish. But when it comes to humor, which is very important for me, humor, irony in particular, satire is much, much easier in English. Yes, when, did, when did you last write a novel in Turkish? It's been a long time. What I do When do you is, do it again? Um, I don't know. But what I do for the last 15 years, what I've been doing is I write each and every novel 
in English first and then it's being translated into Turkish by a professional translator. Then I take that and I rewrite it. So it's a bit insane, it's a bit irrational. You spend almost twice as much time. But I love that commute. And and it taught me so much because you also pay attention to those words, all concepts that cannot be translated easily from east to west or vice versa. And it's it urges you, it, 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 it encourages you to think more carefully about cultural differences. If I may add this, I do know that I did not grow up bilingual, unlike my kids, for instance. I started learning English at the age of 10, 11. I was in Spain back then, and Spanish was my second language back then. And so, therefore, English for me is an acquired language. I'm an outsider in this language, you know, and I will... I'm an immigrant too. And I think like many latecomers, many outsiders, I experience this gap between the mind and the tongue. As immigrants, we always know that when we're speaking in another language, the mind runs faster than the tongue. And our tongues are always trying to catch up. So that gap is very frustrating. But if we learn not to be frustrated by it, I think it's also very encouraging. You don't take things for granted. You pay more attention to, to language. And I think, basically, I see myself as a commuter between maybe languages, just like a commuter between cultures. Yeah, but you, you can't be a commuter between countries anymore. I mean, you you can translate your books into Turkish, they can be published in Turkey, but you don't feel you can go back. Is that a fair summation of the situation? That it, is, it is a fair summation. And um, as you know, Turkey... Over the years, it went back and back and back, first gradually and then with a bewildering speed. We have seen a growing populist authoritarianism, populist nationalism in Turkey. Alongside, we have seen, in my opinion, an increase in sexism, homophobia, misogyny. In my opinion, it's not a coincidence. Wherever you see an increase in ultranationalism, you will see an increase in gender discrimination as well. These things go hand in hand. And it became particularly difficult for people who deal with words, like journalists, particularly journalists, but also academics, writers, scholars, intellectuals. Uh, We do know that whatever you say in an interview, a poem, an article, a novel, even a retweet can be a reason to get you into trouble, in trouble in, in overnight. You can be almost lynched on social media, targeted by pro-government papers, exiled, arrested. So there's a lot of self-censorship among Turkey's literati today, and that's a difficult thing to talk about, but I think we should be able to talk about it. question I was going to ask, when it comes to sort of free speech and those issues, I'd be interested in having your perspective on the sort of there's a very vigorous conversation that goes on in the West now about free speech, which to some extent has become a kind of particular rallying point for the libertarian right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, you've you've got an experience of, of de jure mm-hmm. kind of attacks on free speech in the left. I mean, how do you, you look at our arguments that are going on now about you know campus culture, about mm-hmm. safe spaces and no platforming? As somebody who's you know comes from has experience for culture, where there's you know governmental crackdowns on free speech, I mean, where do you sit on those arguments? Right, uh, for me, freedom of speech is so crucial, so essential, and I think we need to be very careful about taking identity politics to extremes. I'm very critical of that. I lived in Boston for a while, and one of the things that left a big impact on me while I was there, I studied in the archives 
1960s and 1970s African-American women's movement, it is fascinating. When you read their work, because many of them were women of color, they were on the receiving end of racism. Because they were women, they were on the receiving end of sexism. Because many of them were LGBT members, they knew how homophobia worked or transphobia um, was deeply rooted in the in the culture. But again, many of them came from disadvantaged backgrounds, so they knew how class hierarchy or inequality functioned and how persistent it was. So when they talked about power, they spoke about power in a much more nuanced way than we do today. And when you read people like Audre Lorde or James Baldwin, for instance, there's always an emphasis on multiplicity. Basically, what they're saying is, look at me, I'm black, I'm a woman, I'm gay, I'm a poet, I'm a writer, I'm a mother, I'm a parent, and I'm many more things you might not be able to see at first glance. So in a way, just like Walt Whitman's poem, they're saying, I contain multitudes. I think sometimes people on my side of the ideological spectrum, you know, left, liberals, I think sometimes progressives have forgotten today to say, I contain multitudes. The answer to one kind of tribalism is not forming another tribe of our own. We have to find a way to transcend tribalism, to transcend tribes. So for me, the emphasis on multiplicity is very, very important. I don't like identity politics. I'm a progressive-minded person who criticizes identity politics. I believe in multiple belongings. So when I look at myself, of course, I am an Istanbulite and I carry Istanbul everywhere with me. You know, it's very obvious my love for the city in all my work. But at the same time, I'm attached to the Aegean, the Balkans, put me next to a Greek author, an Albanian, Bosnian, you know, Romanian, Hungarian author. I have so much in common with these people. Equally, I have many, many elements in my soul from the Middle East that I will always carry with me. So again, put me next to a Lebanese author, Syrian, Iranian author. I have so much in common. But I'm a European by birth, by choice, the values that I share. Over the years, I've become a Londoner. I have become a British citizen. And despite what Theresa May has been saying, I would like to think of myself as a citizen of the world. That does not mean I do not care. That does not mean I'm a citizen of nowhere. It only means that I care about many things at the same time. I have multiple attachments. So I think we should never lose that emphasis on multiplicity. You can be a patriot. You can love your culture, you know, where you come from. You can feel very attached to the land and the customs of your ancestors. And at the same time, you can be a citizen of the world. This is not a contradiction. And I think it's very misleading that the populist narrative makes us think that you have to choose one or the other, either you're a patriot or a globalist. There is no such artificial duality. Um, you talk about Istanbul, and it is a, you know, it's a huge presence in this book, it's a huge presence in your other work. I'm interested in how it feels to be someone who's sort of centrally writing about Istanbul, but, you know, you can't go there, you haven't been there lately, you know, for some years. Is it becoming a sort of memory or a myth that you're writing about, do you feel? I mean, is it a, you know, does it become something different mm -hmm. if it's if it's an Istanbul of the heart or an Istanbul of the mind rather than mm -hmm. an Istanbul that you're actually, you know, living in? Right. My relationship with Istanbul has always been a pendulum, you know. 
Even in Istanbul, I was a latecomer, an outsider, insider, if you may call it that way. I did not grow up there. I wasn't born there. I was born in France, in Strasbourg. So the first house that I remember is full of, at least in my memory, my imagination, it's full of immigrants, leftist students, you know, speaking about re revolutions, smoking gloas, reading Althusser, Franz Fanon, Jean-Paul Sartre, but probably not Simone There's de Beauvoir. There's plenty of that in this book. Well. <laughs> right. <laughs> From that environment, because my parents got separated, they got divorced, my father stayed in France and my mother brought me to Turkey, to Ankara. And we came into a very, very conservative, religious, patriarchal neighborhood. This was my maternal grandmother's house. Is, is there a bit yeah. of that in your description of Leila's childhood? Of course, childhood, yeah. of course. And I was raised by my maternal grandmother for about 10 years. And and then my during that time, my mom went back to university because she had dropped out of college. So she graduated, she became first a teacher, and then she became a diplomat. So I've seen very different worlds, East and West. And maybe in my work, I try to, or I love I would love to bridge oral culture and written culture. I've never looked down upon oral culture like sometimes intellectuals do in my motherland. But the reason I'm mentioning all that is because even in Istanbul, I've maybe I was like a bit of an yeah latecomer. When you do that, maybe you care more about the city's details. You don't take things for granted. You study more. You pay more attention. And I've fallen in love with Istanbul, but she's a very difficult lover. I call Istanbul a she-city, and you have to run away from her. Then you go back and then run away from her. That said, one thing for me is very clear. There's no such thing as Istanbul. There are Istanbuls. There are layers and layers and layers of Istanbul. Well, there's a lovely line you have in the book yeah. where you say, if, if Paris is the city of love and Jerusalem is the city of God and Las Vegas is the city of sin, Istanbul is the city of multitasking. Right. You know, you've got this sense of everything overlapping and everything, yeah. the water as well. You know, yes. Yeah. yeah, everything overlapping, sometimes coexisting, sometimes clashing. And you have to understand that chaos, you know, it's everything is not side by side, like constantly intertwined the ugly and the beautiful, the old and the new. So it's very difficult to put Istanbul in a single category and expect that she will remain there. With all those conflicts, I think Istanbul exists. That is why outsider insiders can maybe have a deeper connection with the city. Yeah. Now, I should just say, because I, my to show how gripping this book is to read it, I was reading it on holiday and my 10-year-old daughter whipped it off me and read the whole thing. I think it's about the first grown-up book she's read. And I, was like, and I remember mentioning this to you, Olive, and saying that you saying, oh, my children have as well. Yeah. I remember my father saying, you know, if you're old enough to read it, you know, and it's not you know, outright pornography, go ahead, you'll learn. Do you feel we should just, children should have access to any books that they, they're old enough to read, or do you feel anxious about that sort of thing? Okay, and so maybe uh, the reason I hesitated is because the, the the mother in me, the parents in me, and the writer in me just for a moment clashed a little bit. Of course, the, the writer in me believes that we can read anything and everything. But as a parent, of course, at the same time, you want to give them suitable books for their age. So I, so I understand I understand that. But also we need to understand that this is a new generation and they're already talking about so many things. And actually that is good. You know, that they can talk about so many subjects freely. You know, you earlier asked me about taking taking things to extremes and how that can damage 
freedom of speech, but also arts and culture. And now people are proposing having awards for crime fiction that doesn't have violence in it, for instance, or violence, gender violence in it. And, and these are the things that worry me because I come from a land of censorship. Um, and, and to me, the, particularly freedom of speech with regards to art, literature, but also in our public space is, is very important. In 2006, I was put on trial for writing a novel called The Bastard of Istanbul, which tells the story of a Turkish family and an Armenian-American family. And this is a book that talks about memory and amnesia. In Turkey, we're a society, we, we, we have a very rich history, but we're at the same time a society of collective amnesia. And so the book talks about um, the incidents of 1915 deportations, massacres, using the word genocide. So it talks about Armenian genocide. And when the novel came out, I was put on trial for insulting Turkishness, even though nobody knows what that means. Um, so it seems to be a catch-all thing for any Turkish writers they don't like. And I think that is got true. the same, didn't he? That is true. Article 301 in our constitution has been used against scholars, historians who question official history, also journalists. But this was the first time it was used against a novelist for a work of fiction. And because the, the words of fictional characters were taken out of the book and used as evidence in the courtroom, as a result of that, my Turkish lawyer had to defend my Armenian fictional characters in the courtroom. And there were, also were you surprised when that happened? Or did you sort of know, yeah, you know when you used the word genocide, this is going to be a little unexploded bomb in this book? I was expecting some kind of reaction from ultranationalists, but nothing like this, you know? This was just mind-blowing. It was so surreal, so unexpected, and scary as well, because there are ultranationalist groups on the streets spitting up my pictures, burning EU flags, because in their minds, if you question official history, you must be a pawn of Western powers. And that madness went on for about a year. After that, we were all acquitted, me and the fictional characters. But still after that, I had to live with a bodyguard for a year and a, and a half. I wish I could say to you that that happened in 2006 and since then we have made progress, now there's more freedom of speech and authors can write more freely. I'm afraid it's just the opposite. We've been even going backwards more and more. Right now, my fiction is investigated, this time for crime of obscenity. Again, whatever that means. Sometimes people do not realize that, of course, it's difficult to write about political issues, but it can be equally challenging to write about sexuality, gender. So if you happen, if you write about particularly gender-based violence, child abuse, transphobia, such yeah. such issues... All of which come you, into this book. All of <laughs> which is in this book. Again, you can be investigated by prosecutors. So uh, about a month ago, two months ago, actually, police officers, civilian police officers came to my Turkish publishing house. They demanded to see um, my fiction alongside books by an author called Duygu Asena, who passed away about 10 years ago. She was an iconic feminist. And she also wrote about such difficult issues. And these books were taken to the prosecutor's office, who is still investigating them. And to me, the saddest bit is this is happening in a country where we have a serious problem when it comes to gender-based violence, child brides. This is already happening. And instead of 
dealing with the real problems instead of opening shelters for abused women and children, changing the laws, the fact that the authorities are prosecuting authors, fiction writers, is quite sad. But I think the reason why I brought that up is I think all around the world right now there's, there is a backlash against many freedoms, there is a decline, and maybe we need to understand that democracy is far more fragile than we initially assumed. Sometimes people think that these are the problems that can only happen in turbulent lands, in liquid lands, but never in the Western world. That is not the case. No country is immune, in my opinion, to the rise of populist nationalism, populist authoritarianism, and, and the dangers that words and freedom of speech are experiencing. Oh, well, you're, I would say your words are uncannily prescient, but it's actually sort of happening now. <laughs> yes, yeah. Elif Shafak, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you so much, Sam. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.